Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. I spent 30 years in the police and I did a lot of interesting jobs during that time at many ranks. When I left the police, I wrote a book all about my experiences, the title of which, unsurprisingly, is Tango Juliet Foxtrot. But you'll need to read the book to understand what TJF stands for. This podcast is all about British policing the good, the bad, and the ugly. If you're interested in what policing's really like, this is definitely the podcast for you. In it, I interview lots of people who've done some amazing things in policing, and I also give you my thoughts on what's been going on in the news to help you understand how it all works, or doesn't work sometimes. Caution is advised, as some of the topics can be distressing, and there's some swearing from time to time. So, here we go. Hello folks, welcome to episode 44 of the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. Ian here. Uh, so this week we're going to be going into part two, the second and final part of the chat with my old mate and colleague Duncan Johnson, who will be talking all about close protection world. Uh, so yeah, really enjoyed that. I was thinking of doing one big long one, but I think that would have been too much. And uh, I have been reflecting recently as to whether the podcasts have been a bit long recently. And that's a quite a big investment in time for people to listen to. So probably going to just um, pair them back a little bit, unless there's a very good reason to do a long interview. So I'm sat here in the garden office, um, enjoying a very nice cold bottle of Grolsch um father's day today so yeah i've pretty much smashed it on father's day given that i've got four of them um so yeah um i've definitely done my bit for the human race i think so a couple of bits and bobs from the news this week there was a article in the daily telegraph uh the other day talking about how gloucestershire police are handing out um i'm not sure this is the correct term but they use the term poverty vouchers to police officers to use in supermarkets because uh, so many of them are struggling to make ends meet with a terrible pay um, and um, the federation there have said that since 2010 its members have suffered a 20% real terms pay cut and Police leaders are warning that if the government doesn't address the terrible pay for police officers, uh, there is a very real possibility of uh, increase in corruption, uh, either that or officers kind of turning a blind eye to criminality in return for some sort of a backhander or whatever. So this is one of these stories that when you read it, uh, you really have to catch your breath because you just think, Oh my God, you know, um, very, very difficult. You think about the trauma that police officers deal with, the antisocial hours that they work, um, the terrible things that they have to see and do. And then in thanks for all of that, uh, you get sort of new officers starting on, what is it, about 19 grand or something like that. 
really shocking and um, yeah I can't if I'm honest seeing anything changing anytime soon on that one another story that's just worth um, touching on briefly uh, and this is the incident in Peckham in London it was about a week ago now I think basically immigration officers were trying to uh, detain a I believe it might have been a Nigerian male for deportation um, a large sort of mob a kind of usual kind of renter mob uh, extreme sort of left-wing activist types all turned out um, and obstructed the immigration officers uh, preventing them from removing this chap um, and then the police got involved, the Met got involved and by the looks of the pictures it's probably the TSG I would imagine who got called to that and uh, and this is the weird thing about this is that um, because of the threat of disorder or the sheer number of people uh, blocking the street lots of sort of um, civil disobedience type stuff basically they let the bloke go and uh, he was released from the van and allowed to, to leave. Now, whatever you think about the immigration laws in this country, my own view is that that is a really, really um, dangerous road to go down, that basically you give in to the mob. And I, I completely get it that, um, you know, there's a balance to be struck, isn't there, in terms of do you... Uh, go down a road that potentially results in large-scale disorder or do you enforce the law uh, yeah my own view is that um, sometimes you probably have to take a step backwards in order to take two or three steps forward and I could see that the police and the immigration service there were in uh, an impossible position um, but I do think that this is a another sort of indication of the increasing willingness of uh, groups of individuals to come together and effectively bully. And I, you know, I've used that word before. I do think these people are bullies. They're they're zealots. They're ideological zealots, aren't they? Um, this is not a case of someone who has turned up on a boat in Dover, having risk risked their lives. Um, crossing the channel or or someone coming in from Afghanistan or Ukraine who is you know literally um, in fear of their life this is someone who's come into the country I would imagine um, illegally and there are processes in order to um, detain and remove those people from the UK and I do think it's a really run a really really slippery slope if we start um, giving in to this sort of mob rule kind of thing and on one of my previous podcast guests uh, Adrian Tudway uh, made a really interesting and valid point on LinkedIn about this exact because so, so, someone posted an article that was from the spectator I know the spectator is a sort of a right-leaning publication isn't it but the article is entitled the Met should have not backed down in Peckham it's actually terrible grammar, uh, spectator, editor, spectator. I suggest the title should have been The Met Should Not Have Backed Down in Peckham. But there you go, I'm not a journalist, am I? But the uh, the point uh, being made in that article was, was pretty much what I just said, that 
um, we're, we're in a really a sort of slippery slope there. But Adrian, Adrian made this point and I thought it was an excellent point. He said, I suspect that we're rapidly approaching a position where the public thinks that if the Prime Minister can't or won't follow the rules society lays down for us, then why should we? I know it's a leap of faith, but if those who seek to lead us demonstrate the integrity society requires to operate effectively, then we can all expect our fellow citizens to do likewise. In a situation where our highest public office shows utter contempt for the ordinary man or woman and their approach towards society and rules, then perhaps we might expect more examples of this sort of behaviour. The phrase, as you sow, so you reap, springs to mind. My opinions are my own. My apologies to those who see a different perspective. Well, Adrian, you are absolutely bang on on that. And, you know, we have got this narcissistic, um, l proven, multiple proven liar uh, in the in the role of prime minister who, who doesn't have the confidence of, uh, you know, nearly half of his own MPs and uh, all of the opposition parties and large swathes of the British public um, um, were kind of a bit of a laughing stock. Um, increasingly a bit of a, an embarrassment, a national embarrassment and a bit of a laughing stock. Um, so yeah, that's what happens. Um, and finally, before we get into the podcast, I got my first one star review for the book, uh, which is quite, it's quite amusing actually. I'll read it. I'll read it. Out. I mean, I tend not to, I tend not to really try not to worry too much about these things because uh, you know, at the end of the day, not everybody's going to like your book, are they? And that's fine. But I always think the one-star reviews are just someone who's just got the hump, haven't they? Um, but this person's actually put their name to Mr. Uh, M. Robinson. I'm assuming it's a bloke. Um, one star. This is on Goodreads. I'll read it. Didn't bother finishing the book. Boring and uninteresting. Don't have officers under five foot eight? Question mark. I joined in 1977 and was five foot seven and well capable of looking after myself and colleagues. What an insult. Hope you don't bother writing any other books. My 37 years of policing would be far more interesting than this tripe. Waste of money. If it was on return offer, I would want my money back. Read Horse's Arse and compare it to this. No comparison. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, I did, I did have to have a little chuckle when I read that, I just thought he's clearly got the hump because I've suggested that, you know, dropping the height limit of officers was a, a bad idea. I do, uh, I console myself with the fact that uh, on Amazon it's still 80% five star and 14% four star. So that'll do for me. Right, let's get into the second part of the interview chat with uh, Duncan. Hey DJ. Hi mate, how are you? I'm good. Hey, there he is. Look at you. <laughs> this last uh, week or so, it's taken years off you, mate. <laughs> hey, a little bit of sunshine's <laughs> fantastic, isn't it? <laughs> You've lost your specs and everything. Oh uh, no, they're still there, mate, just in case. And I, I've yet to actually find my notes, so. <laughs> <laughs> so do we need a... Um, do you need a bit of a medical update, you know, given that we've yeah, broke, broke mate, I, I, I had my you know. steroid injection on Friday. Did you? Uh, so that that's all that was all about uh, getting sorted out for my injection. 
I was told that the pain was similar to having a leg broken. Literally, I felt oh, like God. such a worse because I went in there and said to my GP, um, is this painful? And he said, no more than any other injection. <laughs> so I braced myself. Was that a wind-up? There was somebody it? winding you up saying it's like having no, your leg I, broken. I, I, did, I did tell him the story, and he said to me, uh, he said, yeah, if, if you miss the meniscus and go straight onto the joint, yeah, you'll, you'll yelp. <laughs> and I said, oh, well, thanks for not doing that and uh you know i live to fight another day so uh... yeah i had um i had a, i had one of those um two or three years ago before i rode my bike down to the south of france for the mitt and yeah. um my knee was giving me jip and i just thought right i need to get this sorted before the big ride so i had one of those in the knee and oh my god the uh the doctor he was he's a bit of a character he's a northern irish doctor and um yeah he was massively understated. He just said, "This may, this may sting a little bit." <laughs> it was like I was nearly, yeah. I was nearly crying. Yeah, <laughs> they, they've got a slightly definition of sting a bit from me. Yeah, I, I'm, th I'm thinking, you know, just a little nip from there. Thinking blue box jellyfish or whatever. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I think my bottom lip did start to tremble at one point. You know. <laughs> Listen, um, this is the first time I've done a sort of a two-parter back-to-back, but I'm going to I'm going to stitch this together into a single episode because I think it'll be better as a you know in a oneer. Yeah, sure. Uh, albeit it'll be like a you know a commercial break in the middle, and you can go and people can yeah. go and get get themselves an ice cream or go to the toilet or. Do <laughs> well, whatever. they could have done yesterday. Today they need a Mac. <laughs> yeah. So um, so yeah, it was really good. Um, it was funny and it was fascinating. Uh, our first chat, but. Um, there's a few things I just want to kind of uh, cover off today. Um, so uh, it'd be really interesting to talk about some of the tools of the trade, you know, what your mm. sort of equipment that you're carrying typically without disclosing any sensitive stuff. I don't think there yeah. will be anything particularly sensitive, but no. uh, just useful to sort of get a few sort of yeah. thoughts I, around the, the sort of some of the training I, I was just well. thinking back in thinking when, when I had to leave last time uh, we were going through um, incidences and I, and I think I, you'd asked me to describe a really low low key one yeah um, and and that's about as far as we got really I think we talked about someone coming up to a principal in a in a restaurant and the rest of it so that's I don't know it. what you wanted to maybe extend yeah, that up to def definitely so so um, yeah so there's other things um, I'd like to talk about as well so yeah sure. we can talk about that um, so describe when it's all coming on top i suppose that's that yeah. we want to sort of think about this is like your worst yeah. your worst scenario but that's what you're training for isn't it yeah. um um interesting to sort of think about how things are done in the uk versus abroad because obviously you guys yeah travel, absolutely. travel yeah. abroad quite a lot so just yeah. in, sort of interesting just to sort of explore that um we can, I'm not sure where, it'd be interesting to talk about the 2017 Westminster Bridge attack, mm. gi given that, you know, one of your colleagues ended up um, shooting um, Khaled Masood dead, mm. uh, you know, yeah. obviously just stumbled across it effectively. Yeah. Um, and thank God he was there. Um, and, and yeah, and just some kind of interesting stories and sort of anecdotes from, from you as doing it, because I know that you sent me through a load of stuff, which was uh, it did made, made me chuckle. It kind of um, there was a few little one liners in there. I thought, oh, God, that sounds interesting. So. So, yeah. Uh, you happy with that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Brilliant. So why don't we start with some of the um, sort of 
tools of the trade. So, so when you typically go out to work um, with your principal, what are you carrying with you typically? Yeah, on a normal day, uh, you'll, you'll have your uh, your sidearm, um, which uh, for, for the for the is invariably uh, uh, a, a Glock pistol. Um, sorry, excuse me, that didn't take long, did it? You're gone. Um, yeah, that that would invariably be a be a, a Glock pistol, but um, yeah, obviously with, with the uh, requirements now for um, non-lethal options, um, one of the team. And again, um, yeah, given I've been retired for six years, when I left, the requirement was for at least one of the team immediately around the principal to have access to a taser. Um, right. You'd be carrying your ASP. You'd be carrying um, CS. Mm. Um, yeah, you know, and again, it's a very. Uh, uh, although there's a requirement, and obviously there's um, what what the good book says. Uh, a lot mm. of people will basically pick and choose uh, some of those options. Again, that's mm. fine until it goes wrong, uh, yeah. and uh, you know it's not for me to moralise and tell other people how to to do that. Yeah, you know, when when we used to run the close protection course, um, SO19 were absolutely on the money in terms of this is what the good book says. If you want to vary from that, mm. um, you run the risk of a being stuck on by a supervisor, but also you run the risk of, you know, if, if, if the worst uh, scenario happens, explaining to a coroner and mm. possibly to uh, the Crown Court why you didn't have a less lethal option. So that's the same as it would be for any AFO yeah. in, in the country. So that bit yeah. doesn't change. Um, what does change is the method of carry, i.e. covert, and uh, some of the other tactics that you've got. So obviously uh, a lot of the, the initial part of the close protection course is around open-handed techniques, you know um, what many people would know as officer safety um there's nothing there uh, in in what we do that's inherently different uh, there yeah. are a couple of techniques that have been modified i, I think yeah. i mentioned to you before about the, uh, the handshake release um yeah but most of it is just honing in on those skills doing it yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe a little bit more robustly because a lot of the mm. time you will be on your own um but it, it's really working on uh, on techniques trying to preempt uh situations in terms of you know, what what would be applicable in certain circumstances, and yeah. again, you have to make a tactical, uh, a tactical assessment um, mm. and a risk assessment on operations, yeah. and also the threat level to the VIP. So that might yeah. mean carrying different weapons, uh, more weapons. Just just move uh, your more... just move your boom mic slightly further away from your mic. You're just getting quite a lot of boom. Yeah. That's it. That's it. That's better. Um, yeah. So 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 yeah. Again, you you would have to look at uh, the size of the team, the profile of the VIP. And the risks uh, associated with that principle before yeah. making your mind as to whether or not you wanted to, uh, you know, ask if if you could then change yeah. your working practices. So a classic yeah. case in point would have been after the Charlie Hebdo attacks. Uh, I know my team at the time felt that we should be uh, carrying the Kurtz uh, mm. routinely. That's and the, that's um, the MP, for people MP5. who don't know what the Kurtz is, basically yeah. it's the much smaller version of the MP5. Um, uh, the team we mentioned last time, uh, the authors' uh, team. Uh, they used to routinely carry that weapon and um, a, certain, a couple of other teams carried it, but it kind of fell out of favor a little bit. Um, and it was almost the first thing that people said after Charlie Hebdo was, um, can we get back and get reauthorized on this and have it um, carried on the team? Um, you know, that came from mm. the officers on the team saying that we really could do with this. And again, that, yeah. you know, that goes back to uh, the management team goes to 19 and gets risk assessed. And then it comes back and is reflected mm. uh, in, in the training and, uh, you know, uh, you know, protocols that you know ensure that that is acceptable to uh, to everybody um yeah. but again that can change um you know and obviously again that's yeah. going to be a harder i mean obviously that's a well it's a 
it's effective a machine pistol, isn't it? But it's going to be a much yeah. harder weapon to carry, kind yeah. of covertly, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's it, it, it it's a much more difficult weapon to aim accurately because you're effectively removing the stock, so you're using the uh, the strap, retaining strap, um, as a, as a, effectively a brace. Which uh, you know, for anybody who's uh, ever tried doing uh, shooting. A, a long, a longer weapon without actually having it implanted in, in, sort of supplanted into your uh, shoulder. Um, it's tricky. Uh, again, like anything else, it needs practice. But mm. with any, as with any other weapon uh, that you are authorized on, you have to be uh, reauthorized every couple of months, um, mm. and you have to train on it regularly. It's, it's like anything else: practice, practice, practice. So, in my the, case, so the firearms, so the firearms training, obviously, is slightly different for the protection people than it would be for, say, someone yeah. on a static post outside dining yeah. street, isn't it? Yeah. So, uh, although an, an awful lot of the uh, shooting for uh, protection officers is at very close range, and uh, I won't go into exact details for obvious reasons, but mm -hmm. I think people would be amazed and go, "Well, actually, how could you miss at that distance?" Well, uh, trust me, I've done it. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. um, it's all about speed, dexterity. Um, and of course, you know, uh, the, the environments that a close protection officer works in are rather different from, um, you know, what, what uh, an ARV or even SFOs would be uh, dealing with because, you know, we quite often are working in very, very close environments. The attack will happen completely um, uh, instantaneously. And again, you've still got the exact same uh, concerns that any uh, firearms yeah. officer in, in the country has, which is yeah. backdrop innocence yeah well i was um, going to say that I'm, i mean i'm not i'm i'm no gun nut you know i don't know very much about guns at all but um clearly there's a there's always a risk with police firearms particularly in this scenario that you just described there for yeah. collateral damage of of over penetration of sure uh of of, of bullets so how, how do you guard against that potentially well that that's um you know been a a, a bit of a uh, sore point uh, for police officers, and, and you know, let's let's be brutally honest about this. Ian. You know, the Close Protection Command have only so far, you know, with the exception of uh, the Westminster Bridge, we've only had one attack where where, where actually bullets have been uh, discharged, mm. and that was Daryl Collin uh, back at the uh, the Hilton back in uh, I think it was eighty two. Mm. Um, so um, you know, the 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 importance of as you say ensuring that uh, innocent aren't, aren't injured is basically dealt with by, by the loading of the um, mm. amount of uh, that powder that goes into the rounds right. and, the, and the design of the round so again i'm not going to go into detail yeah, yeah, but weapons yeah. the, the ammunition that, sorry the, the ammunition that we use in the uk on the mainland uh, would not for example be lawful uh, when we went abroad to some of the high-risk countries that were effectively war zones so the military would have different rounds because you know, they're dealing with a different threat and yeah. obviously their terms and conditions are slightly different. Uh, so we, we would basically be using uh, ammunition that uh, was unlikely to penetrate and that's mm. in their design, but also in the amount of black powder that's in the thing. And again, I'm no gun nut. So, yeah. and I apologize to those people out there who, who, who are, um, it's just, it never really floated my boat, but yeah, that's yeah, my yeah. understanding of it. Um, yeah. Again, things have changed. 9-11 uh, yeah. changed everything and certainly uh, Charlie Hebdo and the attacks in Paris uh, have, have, have changed a lot of things as well. Yeah, it's interesting because my, my brother who was on protection for, as you know, for many years, um, he used to talk about the, the beauty of the rolled up newspaper, you know, uh, the, the rolled up newspaper or magazine, you know, you can actually inflict quite a lot of damage to someone, can't you, with a very yeah. tight, tightly rolled newspaper. Yeah. Because um, if you use it as a sort of a, as a bat for bat and strikes, uh, you know, yep. with the, with a blunt end, 
um you, you yeah. with somebody putting a lot of effort into it you don't want to get in the way of it do you yeah absolutely and it it, it was always uh you know one of the sort of whether it was an urban myth or not i suspect not um you know that the sas could kill you with a matchstick um you know <laughs> we we uh spent a lot of time teaching those techniques uh, to people not not how to kill people with a matchstick i hasten to add before people <laughs> ring in and complain um but you know not only teaching people the techniques, but getting them to hone it and perfect it. And it was one of the things that I think uh, the female officers on the command put an extra amount of effort on because you know, they weren't sort of 14, 15 stone like myself. They mm. concentrated on technique. Mm. And it was amazing when you saw you know, officers who maybe weren't quite as uh, big as me, for argument's sake, mm. um, actually honing in on their technique. And I, you know, I was sort of like just thinking, well, you know, I've played rugby. I can, I can take care of myself. No, it's not. It's all about techniques. It's like golf. Mm, you, know, mm. you can be my size mm. um, and only hit the ball 150 yards. You can be yeah. 10 stone and hit it 300 yards if the technique's good. It's exactly the same with, with a lot of the open-handed techniques that people are taught. Yeah, yeah, good. And, and in terms of um, UK versus abroad, so obviously within UK, and in the UK, it's a fairly consistent um you know uh, rules of engagement so to speak on terms yeah. of what you can carry what you're allowed to do where you're allowed to go etc uh, etc et but it all changes when you go abroad doesn't it oh absolutely yeah and um you know as i'm sure people appreciate uh, here in the uk uh the vast majority of police officers don't carry firearms so uh when we have uh, foreign uh close protection teams coming here obviously i mentioned about the situation with the americans uh, you know, has to be licensed, signed off by the commissioner and by the Home Secretary. When we go abroad, that causes quite a lot of resentment. And I know in the past, uh, countries such as France, where every cop, basically every man and dog seems to have a gun, um, and they have point blank said, no, you're not carrying firearms. And it's pure, purely, um, you know, retaliation for uh, mm. the fact that we don't let the French carry um, as, as we, you know, we don't. Uh, by and large, want anybody carrying in the UK apart from us, if I'm really honest. And yeah, yeah. you know, under European law, uh, sorry, under international law, the understanding is that the host country is responsible for the security of that individual while you're abroad. So many would argue, well, okay, it's down to us. So why are you carrying? But um, when we get there, mm. uh, you know, normally there's a process where you apply to the country in question and ask if you can carry. Sometimes they say yes, sometimes they say no, and uh, mm -hmm. certainly in the case of the French. There was a private phone call had between uh, the two VIPs, uh, the, the, the gentleman that we were looking after and his uh, um, counterpart in France, and suddenly a phone call was made and we were allowed to carry. So um, it yeah, goes to show yeah. that a lot of it is, is just rather petty and yeah. unnecessary. Yeah, but yeah. Um, yeah, I'll be brutally honest here. And I, I th think I and most of my colleagues were very happy when the response came back from the home office saying no you're not allowed to carry <laughs> yeah. right. happy days yeah that's one less thing to worry about it's just a, he a headache isn't it absolutely it's 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 yeah the paperwork it's the, the logistics it's the threat assessments everything that goes with it just adds to the aggro but uh mm. you know I'm, I'm yeah i hate it if i'm saying sounding a bit blase that's not the point um mm. as i say firearms are a essential yeah. part of our equipment but thank so, goodness so we've only uh, had to use them very very rarely so let's suppose then that you go on a foreign trip with your principal to a country that has said, no, we don't want you carrying firearms and they yeah. are going to be supplying their local, you know, protection capabilities, presumably in a, uh, you know, in, in a sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, uh, you know, to, to supply something that is akin to what they would have if they were back in their own home country. Reciprocal, that's the word I was looking yeah. for, a reciprocal yeah. um, uh, agreement. So... 
Um, how does that work then? If you are supposedly the protection officer for your principal, mm. and, the, and then they are in, they are in, let's say France. Then, um, yeah. do you have do you have French old bill protection officers with you? It it depends entirely on the situation. If it's, I mean, normally if it's a working visit, so it's either you know, you're going to meet uh, your your VIP's counterpart, uh, they're going to a summit, some of that. Yes, the, the host country will provide a protection package very similar to what we have in the UK. Um, they will uh, either provide a vehicle or the UK embassy for that country will provide a vehicle that's suitable to our needs. And they will either have that front seat, uh, which we would normally occupy, and the, our team sit in the backup car. Um, or sometimes they'll say, no, that's absolutely fine. You can sit in the front seat. Um, uh, you know, it, it's a negotiation like anything else. It's not, it's not written in, in stone that, you know, uh, when you when you go abroad, this is how you do it. And some countries will say, well, you know what? Um, we don't actually think you deserve or require close protection in our country. You, you're not entitled to it under international statute. Therefore, um, you're on your own. And, um, you know, that brings its own difficulties, uh, whether you're carrying firearms with you or not, because, you know, you are then effectively, you know, working abroad without any support whatsoever. So mm. having having that level of support is a great comfort blanket. But, um, you know, it does put restrictions. But again, most of the countries that we've been and, and I have to say, even some of the countries where you thought that maybe the package we would get wouldn't be that professional, almost uh, uniformly around the world, the standards are very, very high. And if, you know, akin to what we do, or in some cases, much better. I mean, I'm, I'm not mm. saying that the yeah. British police have uh, exclusivity to uh, professionalism. You know, there yeah. are countries out there that are, uh, you know, training their officers uh, to a far higher standard than us. And that's not mm. a, a, a detriment of, of um, our training necessarily or to our selection. It just reflects mm. the risk that, that those countries feel but presumably, and the resources yeah, they're prepared to put into it. Presumably it must be quite tricky, though, if you are there as their sort of UK um, protection officer and you've got sort of foreign protection officers in the mix there, then... Mm. In terms of prime, if something, if the wheel does come off, whose job is it? Because you could end up getting each other's way quite quickly, couldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and you know, and the the blue on blue situation, obviously, um, and worse still, when we're uh, working in uh, various war zones, uh, a green on blue situation, which was uh, very, very uh, much in our minds when we were working in you know, places like Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, and the like. Um, yes. In those places, you are wearing body armor, and the body armor is different from the military. But uh, you know those demarcations uh, and in the confusion of battle, um, you know that obviously for us as as, uh, as cops from from the UK to suddenly be in a war zone, uh, we're already sort of pushing well above. And yeah, you know, we can maybe talk about that uh, later on because it, it it's one of the aspects of close protection that's changed over the last sort of 15 20 years that i know a lot of people are very very uncomfortable with you know what why are we sending cops to war zones and uh, yeah. I, I know uh, our former commissioner uh, john stevens uh, got a very nasty shock when he saw me on tv on sky news and didn't even know we were there um you know yeah um, i hear he got you you said he, he he called you to his office didn't he is that right? oh yeah yeah along with the yoki commander who uh had a rather rougher time than i did if i remember correctly really but, basically uh, what john seems was saying what the hell are you doing out there kind of yeah he, he he'd been completely blindsided and um you know <laughs> it's I'm sure as the commissioner of the Met to suddenly see Sky News and go, I'm sure those are my officers. And it just happened he recognized me from a, a previous job and 
bumped into me. As as you remember, he uh, he used to loiter around the lift lobby and just yeah. front people out and say, "I'm the commissioner. Who are you?" And yeah, yeah. Uh, I, a, I think we all remember him with with affection. He was a, uh, he was a great guy, though, wasn't he? Certainly, the last of the of the real old school uh, commissioners. Yeah. Um, you know, and I and I. Um, I do think back to some of the stories about him. Uh, you know, shall we say brusque? <laughs> but know? he used to play that. He used to play that silly joke, didn't he? Where TST officers, uh, territorial support group officers, would get into the lift at Scotland Yard and all hold on to their ties, wouldn't they? Because because mm. um, some bright spark would would t- rip one of the ties off and throw it out the doors just as the doors were closing. You know, and uh, yeah. there's a great story of of him getting into a lift with a load of TST officers and and ripping off one of their ties and throwing it out the door. <laughs> You know, I mean, <laughs> fantastic. You know, when you when the yeah. commissioner of the Met is playing silly jokes like that, you think, well, yeah. that's I'd, I'd, I'd walk over burning coals for someone like that. You know? <laughs> but uh, anyway, so let's yeah. talk about um, worst case scenario then. So we talked in the previous chat about um, that kind of low grade, very ambiguous kind of scenario in a restaurant where you're not quite sure what you're dealing with but something that could escalate into something really horrible. So mm. let's talk about uh, a different type of scenario where um, you you are out with your principal. Uh, appreciate it's going to be slightly different on foot versus vehicles. Um, we're not going to be you know, just mindful, not giving away any sensitive tradecraft here or anything like that. But you're, you're out with your principal going from A to B and you're walking. So, so let's give it on foot. You're, you're out walking. Um, somewhere in Westminster and somebody appears out of nowhere with a knife or a or a firearm and starts yep. making it very clear that they're going to yep. attack your principal. So talk me through that scenario. Yeah, so so all the training that we do is, is, is based around dealing and neutralizing the threats as quickly as possible. The first thing that we emphasize to people from day one, lesson one, is doing nothing isn't an option. And again, just instilling in people that if they just do something, you can go back and uh, have the post-mortem afterwards and say whether or not that was the best option or whatever, but you have to do something. And for the person who's, who's closest to the VIP, again, depending on where the attack comes from, it may be that that's not necessarily the person that's known as the, you know, the PPO, the personal protection officer, who in terms of tactics is the person that would be normally sat in the front left-hand seat of the car um, and is the person that would ordinarily be on the right-hand shoulder of the VIP. Um, that, that person you know, may just be through uh, uh, you know, uh, bad luck or through the fact that the attackers um, planned it, comes out and actually the CPO, the backup team, is in a, is in a better position to take on the threat or, mm. or to deal with the VIP. So whoever is in the best position to look after the VIP, I mean, you know, keeping them safe is the number one objective. So right. you know, their job is to get between them and the attacker. Um, now, how they achieve that, first instance is grabbing hold of them and standing right in front yeah. of them and, and actually taking possession of them. And mm-hmm. in the same way that you go right back to your first day at Hendon where you're told, yeah, when you arrest somebody, you will lay hands on them, tell them you are under arrest and then tell them the offense. Mm-hmm. It's very much the same principle uh, with, with um, close protection. The moment you think there's an attack coming in, one of you, and you know, let's say that would normally be the person who's closest to the VIP at that, the moment the attack happens, will grab hold of the VIP, put their body between, and hence the name bodyguard or bullet catcher, as some people refer to them, um, and block off as mm. much physically of the body shape and, uh, of the uh, VIP. 
So whether that's for a firearms attack or, or a um, bladed weapon, you're basically getting in the way. And of course, that can also include you know, missiles being thrown, paint, mm. acid, you name it. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's your, first, that's your first response. Then you're looking to put distance between the VIP and the uh, attacker. And yep. again, if it's a multiple attacker, that's um, you know, a really, really bad day at the office. So mm. that may be getting them to the armored car. That may be getting them into a building. It may be running. Uh, but again, you know, depending on the age um, and physical capabilities of the, of the VIP, that might not be an option. And I think back to dear old Ted Heath and uh, Baroness Thatcher towards the end, you know, you're not running anywhere with them. And certainly, yeah. uh, you know, Her Majesty is in no position to run anywhere. So again, it has to fit the profile of the VIP, the capabilities yeah. of the team. And, you know, it's, it's not a case of, um, you know, being heroes here. Your first job is to look after the VIP. And if your best tactical option is to bail out mm. and get everybody safe uh, without actually dealing with the threat in terms of actually getting shots away or arresting them, then depending on the circumstances, if it's a really bad day at the office, just surviving may be yeah. achieving your aim. Um, obviously, we're police officers. So mm. in an ideal world, if you've got the capability to do it, the VIP is evacuated yeah. and remaining members of the team stay and deal with the threat whether that's actually dealing with it arresting them um or actually neutralizing you know with firearms if if that was what was required um and again you then get into pip and all the rest of it and for a long long time i think those of us on close protection thought we were exempt but mm. again i think as as time progressed post incident pursuit post incident procedure um and and again we've learned uh, through um CO19's experience, and, you know, and they quite rightly have said, look, you can't just keep on going, oh, we're a special bunch, you know, we're, we're, we're not, ex not actually uh, subject to the same rules and regs as the rest of uh, modern policing. No, um, you know, that has changed, and where possible, and, you know, senior officers now are uh, accredited and roles assigned, and when you're putting together your tactics and uh, operational plans, those individuals are identified as part of that plan, yeah. as you would do for any yeah. firearms operation. I mean, so a, again, it's an interesting scenario, isn't it? Because you, you're talking about, um, typically speaking, as you know, um, other than for the work of the ARVs who go out there day in and day out um, on sort of, uh, you know, re responding to incidents, um, there will always be uh, in a pre-planned or spontaneous firearms incident there will always be a tactical firearms commander, TFC, yeah. who will be calling, the, sort of making the decisions, I suppose, if, if there is time, I suppose. That's, I'm just trying to think of the listeners who, who don't understand this world at all. So mm. if, if you've got time, um, then a tactical firearms commander, and it might be the inspector or chief inspector in the force control room. Typically, it will be if it's a dynamic thing. But if you've got some time to plan something, then a tactical firearms commander will be identified who will then come up with a plan in order to bring about a successful and safe outcome for everyone. Yeah. But in, in the scenario that you're describing, it's it's always going to be dynamic, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's always going to be. It's going to come out of nowhere. Yeah. So there isn't going to be the time for a TFC to get involved. Um, and it's really going to be down to the individual officers on the ground to make yeah. those decisions, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you're not dealing with an ideal world. So it's, it's, it's not planned. Um, you have to deal with it. And again, this is where experience, maturity um, and professionalism comes in. And, you know, you, you just pray that you know, when the worst happens, that 
that muscle memory will kick in and mm. that having got the VIP safe, mm. then you revert to being a police officer and doing what your job, uh, what your job is. And, you know, the way that training has changed um, during my time in the police service, um, doing um, rapid entry, which we never thought we'd have to do. What's that got to do with being a bodyguard? But again, it was pointed out that you, know, you are still, you know, still AFOs. You do still have a responsibility. You can't just say, well, my job's bodyguarding. That's a bit beneath me. It doesn't yeah. work like that anymore. And quite right too. I think, I think even, even the old guard would accept that, uh, you know, if you're, if you're carrying a firearm and you're the best person to deal with a threat, especially a life-threatening threat, mm -hmm. such as uh, an armed attacker, um, yeah, you can't just uh, jump in the, the backup car and disappear and say, oh, we'll, we'll call uniformity. So that's just uh, not going to mm -hmm. float these days. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, there's a thousand scenarios I could throw at you, but that would be unfair. And um, But yeah, I would def it's just interesting to sort of hear your, you know, the thought process around all of that. So so moving on to, um, yeah, what I'm really keen to kind of talk about is the real life sort of day to day. Some of the some of the challenges of doing that job because you're dealing with principals who are a kind of a, an odd bunch of people by any definition, aren't they? Um, Your words, not mine. <laughs> you know, they are. They are. They are a lot of people with big, big egos. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, the the sort of the power dynamics, I suppose, is is an interesting one because yeah. they are uh, people who expect those around them to be doffing their caps uh, at them. Yeah. And, and and very often the protection officers, um, certainly, and you know, from my memories of you know being in that world, albeit it wasn't a protection officer, but the people I worked with, like yourself and others, were mostly mostly detective constables and detective sergeants, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. so yeah, it's a managing managing those egos must be challenging sometimes. I would imagine, particularly whenever. Yeah you're kind of straying almost into their family life a lot of the time, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think when, when I first joined the uh, command, I, I think the difference between ourselves and royalty protection was quite marked in as much as the very senior royals um, would always have a very senior officer in charge, you know, superintendent or, or uh, equivalent. Uh, and likewise, even the prime minister's team uh, had a superintendent um, and then a, maybe a DCI and a couple of uh, inspectors. Uh, but, yeah, that that has changed, and I, I think I think it, it reflects uh, the way that the police service is going now. You know, if you're a supervisor, you're there to supervise. And again, you know, we talked about um, tactical firearms commanders and all the rest of it. I know many officers now um, who have rank have, have undertaken those courses. I know I did uh, during 2012 with the Olympics preparation, um, and you know, I. <sighs> I, I don't want to uh, sound like uh, I know it all here, but I, I pushed very, very hard when I was at number 10 for the supervisors, whether that's a sergeant or myself or one of the other um, senior officers, to sit in the backup, not sit in the front seat, because mm -hmm. I think it's very difficult to be the PPO and actually have the broader view. Um, yeah, yeah, and also, yeah. when, when you're having those difficult conversations because the VIP um, has decided he doesn't want to follow the, the, the agreed plan for the day, um, or mm. they throw a spanner in the works. Um, if you're in that front seat, you can't really be having those phone calls and making arrangements if you're in the front seat. Because the front, the front seat in the VIP's car should be uh, tranquil, quiet place. It's their workplace at the end of the day. You know, they mm. they can do what they want, but obviously the the driver and the um, PPO, 
you know, have to pretty much remain silent. I mean, if you're wearing earpieces, that's fine. But you can't be having conversations, especially difficult conversations, because there's a change of plan if you're in, in, in that front seat. So mm. my feeling was that supervisors uh, should be in the backup car, if at all possible. And, mm. you know, your job then uh, really is, is, is managing uh, whatever aspect. So, you know, something as simple as they throw an extra uh, engagement into the, uh, you know, say mm. that, uh, a classic case in point would be there's a world event uh, and they decide they're going to do a press, an impromptu press conference. Uh, yeah. So that might be a case of, I want to go to BBC in whatever town you're in. Um, and of course you haven't wrecked it because you didn't know that you were going to go there. Uh, so then it's a, yeah, probably you'll, you'll have uh, local officers with you. So maybe you'll pass some of that information off and say, look, have you got anybody who can go to uh, BBC Derby for argument's sake and meet us there? Yeah, and yeah, at that short notice, they probably won't be armed, but mm. just someone there to to see you in safely. Um, then, of course, you've got to make sure that the team know and that we're all going to the same place. That yeah. uh, you know that we've we've got that covered. That um, you know we basically have got the right authorities because sometimes it'll be actually if you're a, a visit out of London, uh, mm. you may need to go to a, a, a different county with a different police force. Yeah, completely unannounced. Then suddenly it's a, all right. We need to let Chief Constable know, and of yeah. course, then the problems start because, of course, you end up with with them wanting to know. Well, why weren't they copied into the original plan? And yeah, you know, it's so, not- so. You mentioned right at, right at the start of that. You mentioned the whole recce thing. So that was something we didn't cover off previously. Mm. So so I know that um, you know you will always do if you can. We'll yeah. always do a recce of a venue. Yeah. Um, be- before going there so that's quite a big part of your job isn't it yeah oh abs- absolutely and you know it goes back to the old uh saying about uh, piss ball uh planning leads to and yeah. uh you know it, it, it it's never truer than in close protection and if if you can't be bothered because you've been there umpteen times to do a recce you know people say oh you know i've been to the uh, you know, queen elizabeth uh, the two conference center umpteen times i don't need to recce it well, really, because I guarantee you that that building, the format within that building changes every day, mm-hmm. uh, depending on what the needs are of, of the conferences that they have there. So uh, security staff change, uh, their protocols change. You, mm-hmm. you just, the moment you assume that you know mm-hmm. somewhere, you're in a whole world of pain. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, so get, getting down there normally as close to the event as possible. And of course, sometimes we'll, especially more, the more complicated venues or with more high profile uh, VIPs, You'll send someone down there, you know, call an advance officer, and they will go down there, you know, maybe an hour before, make sure mm. that they're happy, and they will keep the place secure until you're ready to arrive with the VIP. But yeah. a recce is an absolute essential, and of course, yeah, the, the closer you can do it to a, the, the visit itself, the better. Because as I say, things yeah. change and change very quickly. Yeah. Um, so going back to the dynamics, the interpersonal dynamics. Do you? I mean, it's. I suppose the question is how long is a piece of string you know every every principal is going to be different and every protection officer is yeah, sure. different aren't they but in terms yeah. of sort of you know chit chat in terms of you know how do they do they are they interested in you even remotely as in terms of as a human being actually i have to say in in uh, in fairness very few of the principals that i've worked with over the years uh, has been anything other than pleasant um, right. you know, we, you, the, the ones that we have altercations with are those who don't receive it routinely. So, 
where you go into a high-risk country and you know maybe uh, a minister or a government official has, has received protection for that one instance and they're not used to protection, they might find that a little bit difficult because of course they're working with people they never worked before, they've never had protection before, but the run-of-the-mill uh, protection uh, uh, pr principles that we work with, 99% of them have always been good as gold. And mm. even those that object to protection and, you know, let's be brutally honest, some of them object to the police. Um, you have to get on, you have to work. Um, mm. The key, I think I mentioned last time we spoke, was yeah, getting those key peoples within their private office on site, but also getting their other halves on site. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, if you start upsetting partners, wives, uh, boyfriends, you know, you're, you're in a hiding to nothing um, yeah, because yeah. you won't get the information. You sure as hell won't get any help. Mm. And that's those nice things. Yeah, when you're out all day, uh, 16, 17 hours, and you get told nothing, um, and you haven't eaten, you haven't gone to the loo, uh, that becomes a long, long day in the office. And that, yeah. of course, builds resentment. Um, and you want to avoid that at all costs, for, for everybody's sake, not just your team, but also for the VIP, mm. because no one wants to, you know, let's, let's not uh, kid ourselves here. Having close protection must be the ultimate pain in the backside. And, mm. you know, you are, although I said to you before that you know, people are offered it, they don't have to take it. Um, they know that it kind of uh, is maybe the death knell of their political career if they say no to it. Yeah. Um, so they, a lot of them feel that it's been imposed, whether they wanted it or not. And mm. whilst there's always wriggle room in terms of some of the resources, uh, some of the constrictions that are put on their private life, you know, there has to be a mature and adult conversation. And a lot of that comes down to your relationship with them. And yeah. you know, the close protection officers, as you said, most of whom are you know, PCs and sergeants, have mm. a massive amount of responsibility. They're talking with some of the most senior people in the country mm. and having to negotiate with them, um, as they will do with senior officers from different forces and yeah. even within their own force, because yeah. they're the ones who are expected to have the answers. You know, if, if, if something goes wrong and the commissioner staff officer rings you up to say, hang on, I've just seen on the news that you know, the team have dropped a, a clanger, why? Hmm. You know, it doesn't matter what rank you are. The commissioner uh, will want to know there and then what, what's gone on. And similarly with, with the VIPs, you know, it doesn't matter what rank you are. If you're in the front seat and the VIP turns around and they're having a bad day, hmm. you are getting <laughs> both barrels. And it's a very, very uncomfortable position to be in. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. knowing your role, also having that resilience and, and self-confidence to stand up for yourself. And again, I would like to think that that is why... Uh, we are very good at it in the UK because I think cops are good at talking to people. Mm. We're used to dealing with confrontation. We're used to thinking on our feet. And uh, you know, as, as I said before, I'm not having a pop at anybody else who, who, you know, any of the countries or the military. I just happen to think that in the UK, most cops, if they can't talk, well, they shouldn't really be police officers in, in my opinion. Yeah. It must be very challenging. If you've got a, if you've got a, a principal who is, you know, um, easy to work with, Hmm. and um you know treats you properly um is sort of you know considerate and respectful of you and your your role uh, in terms yeah. of the professionalism of your role uh it must be um, make life you know so much easier but i can yeah. imagine if you have one who's the opposite of all of those things it must yeah. make for a very very um tense yeah. kind of time oh i i i can think of one particular uh, vip fairly recently who uh, absolutely hated having protection and um, used to uh, routinely cycle to uh, the Houses of Parliament. And uh, we we had a contingency based around this because obviously if you're on a bicycle, it's quite difficult to follow through central London in, in the car sometimes. 
Mm. So we would have officers out uh, on foot or on push bikes themselves. And right. uh, this particular VIP actually cottoned onto this and then fronted out a completely innocent member of the public and accused them <laughs> of being <laughs> one of the security team, uh, much to the amusement of the security team who were following it at a discreet distance. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are... <laughs> Uh, well, it's, a bit, it's a bit like it's a bit like when subjects occasionally you'll see subjects under surveillance uh try, fronting out completely innocent members of the public you yeah. know that on accusing them yeah. of being surveillance officers yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you can see them looking yeah. completely baffled you know yeah no i i i, I remember on a uh a foreign visit uh, the vip that we was, was just having a bad day at the office and we'd had a we'd had words early in the day and um I'd had to draw the line on a couple of bits and pieces, I mean, not because I was being difficult, but because the host country had said, no, you're not doing that. And they wanted them to travel in uh, a certain vehicle on a certain route. Mm. And uh, in their temper tantrum, they stormed off and jumped into a car, uh, which they thought was a close uh, a car belonging to our embassy. It wasn't it? It was a completely innocent member of the public and they just jumped <laughs> in their car. <laughs> Brilliant. So you told me a funny story about what well, was it wasn't funny at all actually. I mean, I laughed because that's funny because I, you know, because you're a mate. But uh, you got really ill, didn't you, when you went to was it Bangladesh? Was Bangladesh it to... with uh, with with Andy? Uh, yeah, we both we were both sick as dogs. Um, uh, it um, it was one of those strange situations. We we were actually um, asked to go out to Bangladesh to teach uh, their uh, special forces close protection. Uh, and again, you know, uh, I said earlier on about uh, standards. I have to say the standard uh, of their uh, officers, absolutely fabulous. Uh, they were all um, young, um, young officers in the army, um, all uh, very bright, multilingual, um, very, you know, very highly trained, very, very uh, professional. Um, but uh, we, we went there during Ramadan. And uh, so, of course, nobody was eating uh, but they laid on a huge so we're in the officer's mess for lunch andy and i this is our first day we're both already really really ill and we oh, turn really? up with okay. the foreign turn up with the foreign office uh, the liaison officer who um, basically had sponsored the trip because this was a you know, bridge building exercise with one of our key uh, um, military allies and so uh, the, the foreign office were, were were paying for the trip and uh, there we are, first day. Both of us almost had to be dragged out of our hotel pits uh, because oh, we're both no. sick. And we nightmare. sit there and we, we sit through these presentations by these uh, young officers <laughs> from the Bangladesh SF. Uh, we watch their firepower demonstrations, yeah, which is yeah, basically them showing how capable they are with their various tactics. Mm-hmm. And then we come to lunch and we're thinking, oh, okay, this will be interesting because there's just the three of us because it's Ramadan, they're not eating. Yeah. And they bring out the biggest bowl of biryani I've ever seen in my life. Oh, really? Well, Andy, I'm sure <laughs> won't mind saying, just took one look at it and fled. Um, and it's just left me and the uh, foreign office, uh, liaison officer, who said, well, we've got to eat it. It'll be seen as a great insult. And we literally... Oh, God. There's nothing worse than eating when you're not... It was when just, you don't feel like it, isn't it? Just dreadful. And then uh, I re- remember um, we, we, we'd been... Well, we just pro- progressed to get more and more ill, basically. And uh, we, we asked the uh, foreign office if they could get us into uh, a doctor's uh, surgery. But because it was Ramadan, uh, there'd been a cholera outbreak in uh, Accra. So uh, we, we couldn't get any medical assistance. Um, the um, embassy couldn't help us because 
you know, the rules out there are slightly whilst, different. Whilst feeling like death warmed up, are you still having to try and support your principal as the? No, as we, the, we weren't there with the. We were there for training. Oh, sorry, sorry. Uh, so we, sorry, we were at the training, so we didn't actually have a VIP with the Saint Goddess. But I, we, I have been in that situation, um, yeah, Saint Jeff, uh, where basically I have taken some of the. Uh, more uh, radical versions of the modium that you could possibly think of provided by the military. Um, I I suspect that the the doctors and medical people uh, would not have been impressed because I had no idea what this big green tablet was, but apparently it's what they give to the army when they're in trouble. Um, But uh, yeah, (laughs) I I, I just, the the Bangladesh trip, I just remember ringing up uh, the chief superintendent and just saying, please, please, can we come home? Because the foreign office had paid for our tickets, they were non-refundable. And eventually, uh, we, we we did manage to get some seats um, on a flight back. And honestly, how Andy and I were allowed back on that plane, I do not know. Really? Um, I'm sure the cabin crew looked at us and thought, <laughs> <laughs> what's up with these guys? Oh, dear. Um, they the certainly reason, weren't the only reason I'm laughing is because I know you both. And uh, oh no, it's, it's this is karma for Andy because of all this shit he's given me over the years. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like... But you know, but you actually had you actually had dysentery. I had dysentery. Yeah, I um, yeah, I ended up to a ten centimeter um, abscesses in my liver, which uh, oh, but for the grace of God would have uh, shuffled me well and truly off the mortal coil. But um, oh, yeah, um, I have to say, nine months diagnosed, the best diet known to man. I think I lost five and a half stone at one stage. Oh my um, God! But you know, I uh, I must praise the NHS here. I've said the treatment I received uh, was absolutely superb, and it wasn't for lack yeah. of trying. It's just, yeah. you know, I was the one who'd been somewhere weird and exotic, and they were unable to identify it. But uh, London School of Tropical Medicine eventually nailed it, and uh, they were brilliant. So uh, oh, yeah, I was God. I was superbly so, well so, taken care of. So there are, you know, the, uh, joking aside, um, it, there's some real risks, aren't there? Not just in terms of oh. the potential for. You know, having to deal with a, a threat to a principal is just the yeah. very fact that you're traveling to some slightly dodgy places sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think the health side of things is, is overlooked uh, a lot of the time. You know, when, when you're putting your risk assessments together, how you get to some of these places. I mean, certainly uh, with some of them, um, uh, people, you know, uh, the classic case in point would be uh, the Department for Overseas Development, where, where, where they go to some of the more um, dangerous places in the world mm-hmm. you're getting very little support uh, but you're going there to basically support the host nation with aid or whatever it is the UK government uh, mm-hmm. wants to provide um, so it may be that actually it's the local aid organisations um, you know whether that's UNESCO or the UN um, who actually end up helping out with security so uh, again they'll have their own security advisors like the BBC the BBC won't let any of their staff go abroad yeah. unless they've risk assessed and have either security with them or they've done a proper assessment. So um, you end up going to these places. And actually the one thing that people tend to not think about is what cars are you going to be in? What, what roads are you going to be going up? And yeah. I know certainly uh, we had several instances in the early days in Afghanistan where basically we were using old um, Soviet era uh, freighters to get around. Yeah. which were literally held together with pieces of string. I mean, they were absolutely dreadful. And the, the, the UK government has a list of airlines that uh, they won't allow us to travel on. Well, these wouldn't have even appeared on their radar. Never mean, never uh, mind being uh, yeah. forbidden to travel on. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, it comes down to uh, individual uh, choices. Some of our more adventurous uh, colleagues couldn't give a damn. Um, yeah. 
a gentleman I'm meeting up for with lunch today, and he'll know who he is, and I'm sure a lot of my former colleagues will remember the story. Uh, basically, he got strapped to the outside of a helicopter because there was no room inside, <laughs> but he needed to get somewhere on the hurry up. And they literally, you know, you see these SWAT guys with the yeah, straps yeah, on the outside. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. what they did. Um, he he was more than happy. He thought it was a great adventure. Um, although, I have to say, when we got back to the UK, he wanted writing up for a commissioner's commendation, uh, which I had to firmly mail to the mast as I saw my career going down the tubes as the commissioner read that and went, you authorised what? <laughs> Oh, brilliant. There's a there's a funny where you sent me that document with some little one liners on it, which just made me giggle because I'm I kind of I can you know, you don't know what they're what they're about. But there's there's one here that makes me it's intriguing minivans and the Turkish convoy. What's that all about? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, the, the Turks are one of those countries uh, who, who yeah, for obvious reasons, take their security very, very seriously, uh, which makes this story probably all the more amusing, really, because their their protection team is huge. and um, they are pretty aggressive in, in the way that they deal with people. Um, they, they, they will do things uh, in hotels such as uh, disable the hotel CCTV without consulting anybody. Mm. They'll bring in their own uh, tech and IT um, and they think nothing of pushing people around on the streets of London who are no threat whatsoever <laughs> other yeah. than they've stopped there with their phone to take a snap. Yeah. So um, they, they turned up, I think it was in, in the early days with uh, President Erdogan and <laughs> We we said to them, okay, well, look, it's, it's an official visit, so you're going to have the motorbikes. Yeah, yeah, fine. Okay, great. Um, we would like every everybody to travel together. So normally the, the luggage and the hangers-on will come in a separate package without escort. Uh, but they insisted that they wanted to have everybody in one package. And we said, well, okay, we're not really comfortable with this. And the special escort group, uh, highly professional, wonderful uh, boys and girls, um, came along and said, well, to be honest, uh, <laughs> you know, that's going to be a really long convoy. How many vehicles are we talking about? And I said, well, we don't really know yet because they haven't told us. So we get to the Royal Suite at Heathrow and suddenly all these minibuses and minicabs start turning up. So they had literally gone to the local minicab firm and said, how many vehicles have you got? We're expecting embassy vehicles or at least people who've been hired professionally. Yeah, no, yeah, we yeah. have literally got minicab drivers in liveried minicab uh, vehicles and we're having to try and explain to them what they need to do and eventually I, we just said look we're going to try and lose them at the first roundabout on the on the uh, perimeter road on the on the a4 because we cannot have this sort of carnival it looked like something from the blues brothers <laughs> this is cabal of you know beaten up old metros and escorts and god knows what else um anyway um, it wasn't the greatest of starts to the trip, to be honest, and things kind of went downhill from there. But again, it's it's about expectations. The Turks clearly thought that we would accommodate this. Um, yeah, never going to happen. I, did, um, <laughs> I had to laugh. I'm not a big fan of Boris Johnson at all, but I had to laugh about the poem that he wrote about President Erdogan. He entered the um, Spectator, I think it was the Spectator magazine, uh, had a competition and he, and he won the competition and his poem was, and I'll quote, I'm reading this off Google, there was a young fellow from Ankara who was a terrific wankerer <laughs> till he sowed his wild oats with the help of a goat, but he didn't even stop to thank her. <laughs> I think that is, that was written by our prime minister. Yeah, that was about I'm, I'm, the Turkish president, you know. It's I'm like, certainly... <laughs> 
I'm thinking about a certain episode of Blackadder at the moment where uh, Edmund Blackadder is um, commenting on the state of the uh, British um, university system. And you can't help thinking, if that's what Eton and Oxford do for you, well, then you're welcome to it. Yeah, the, the competition I don't think was, the Poet Laureate need worry, do you? The competition was called the President Erdogan Offensive Poetry Competition. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, there's some some crazy some crazy stuff, isn't there? That that you get involved yeah. in, and um, yeah. yeah, I mean, my goodness, because I think we're probably for the for the sake of um, you know your future uh, um, you know reputation, we probably better uh, better better kind of draw a line onto all of that. Listen, I'm I'm conscious I'm conscious of the fact that um, you know we had an R we've done an R and R we had with probably an R and a 20 minutes previously so um I, I don't want to kind of you know take advantage of your good nature um mate it's it's been brilliant i've i mean the thing is i thought i knew quite a lot about protection because my brother was a protection officer and so many of my friends have been or still are um but i've learned a hell of a lot and this is the thing i love about this podcast is that no, no matter how much you know about policing um Every day is a school day, isn't it? Every day. It is absolutely, yeah. So you're yeah. currently um, in the private sector in sort of private security now, aren't you? I am, for my sins, yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting because obviously the world of security is inundated with former cops and former military types. Um, mm. But as you say, I, I, I met a, um, with, with the, the company I work for at the moment, which is looking at uh, acquiring some new premises, literally just around the corner from our old um, gaff at uh, Scotland Yard, and uh, which is sadly no longer there. Um, and met the security manager for this new premise and uh, premises and uh, very quickly picked up on his South African accent, got chatting. And we actually had a mutual friend. He, he'd been in the uh, South African police and he'd been trained by a former superintendent of mine. He'd been on the murder squad out there and we'd sent people out there to teach them forensics and bits and yeah. pieces. And this guy... Uh, remembered this course very fondly and uh, it was just great catching up and uh, you know he, he, he as luck would have it uh, he mentioned this guy's name and I've put them in touch with each other so uh, again I, I think what you're doing in uh, with, with the podcast and um, everything around the book yeah it's great because it does keep people in touch and uh, as I'm sure you know there are mm. uh, colleagues out there who you know have, have been unwell and yeah. have been struggling certainly some of our colleagues uh, yeah. from uh, our special branch days who have had a really tough time of it uh, mm. with the inquest uh, inquiries going on and obviously the yeah. inquests from uh, Stockwell as we discussed before yeah. and you know just putting people back in touch with each other and also yeah. I hope that through the podcast people will understand you know when when they're listening to this I, I, I'm sure there will be people who go oh bodyguard and that sounds sexy yeah um those of us who, who who've been lucky enough to uh, to do that role mm. you know We've been in a very, very lucky position. Yeah. But I hope that people listening will realise that it's not all flash cars and um, you know sleeping sleeping with uh, exquisite <laughs> VIPs. Um, you know, it's it's a job. It needs doing. And uh, you know, yeah. the, the boys and girls who are doing it now, um, you know, take I, I do take my hats off them yeah. uh, because yeah. they they are under a lot more scrutiny than we ever were. And I know we we discussed very briefly the, uh, the shooting at Westminster. Um, you know, you hope it never happens, but just mm. goes to prove that uh, that day may just be around yeah. the corner. Yeah, well, uh, that's it. I mean, I think for me, a lot of this is about, um, you know, I make it really, really clear. Uh, I've always made it really clear that, you know, I this isn't, 
you know, it's just a lot of the stuff is, you know, the opinions I voice are my own opinions, but they're based on many, many years of of experience and uh, knowing an awful lot of people in in the profession. Um, but the, the key thing for me, mate, is that that this podcast succeeds in hopefully humanizing the police, police service, police officers, and trying to just to sort of explain the difficulties and the complex nature of 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 the job. Because mm. I, I just think it's been given so such a kicking. I'm not going to yeah. go go off on one about all of that because it's well documented what I think about that. But yeah, it's been given such a kicking now for the last ten or twelve years. It's shocking, and I feel so yeah. so sad now whenever yeah. I open the paper or turn on the TV and there's yet another story about the police, the police, you know, getting yeah. a kicking. And yeah. and and people need to realise that if you're going to completely demoralise an entire profession. That mm-hmm. will have, that will have consequences. Unfortunately, yeah. you know you're yeah. not going to get the high caliber people in the organisation that it, that you need to do the sort of jobs that you're describing. Um, yeah. You know, it will become a very sad um, reflection of what it of what it you know of what it used to be. You know. Yeah, yeah, and and I I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, and I I I hope that uh, I'm correct in this assumption, but I I believe that the overwhelming majority of VIPs that we've looked after over the years, um, especially those who started off not thinking great things about police, will understand from their short interaction with us on, on close protection just what it takes to be a police officer, whether it's you know, our ability to, to talk and uh, communicate and uh, to, to think things through, but also you know, just when, when they are out and about in an event and they see you know, the uniform colleagues standing there who've been there for you know, maybe two or three hours in the pouring rain, you know, the resilience and mm. patience, uh, especially when you have anything thrown at you and, uh, mm. you know, you're not having a great day. Um, you know, it, it is a very, very difficult job. And, you know, I'm not kidding myself that uh, close protection was the front line, far from it. Um, <laughs> and I know when I got promoted and was facing the idea of being an inspector at Brixton, I was only a day out, I think, from, from that actually coming to reality. Uh, I'm not sure I would have wished that on the British public, if I'm really honest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you might have. I think you'd have surprised yourself. I think you'd have enjoyed it. You know, like a lot of these jobs. I, I might have enjoyed it. I'm just not sure the public. Oh, would have done. I, I loved. I loved. I loved being a uniform sergeant, and I loved being a uniform inspector. I thought they were great jobs, but but yeah, very different, very different set of challenges. But listen, mate, um, that was brilliant. Really, really enjoyed it. It was lovely catching up with you and and um, you. What we, we need to, I know we keep on saying it to um, to uh, JW, you'll know who I'm talking about down in uh, yep. London. Um, we need to sort out beers and food and just get together and just talk a load of all bollocks as we do, you know? Yeah, maybe, maybe I can expand on some of those stories with one liners. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> either, of us losing our, either of us losing our careers <laughs> or pensions. What's left of it? What's left yeah. of it? <laughs> all right, mate. Listen, you take care and say hello Thanks to anybody you, who knows me. Yeah, we'll do, mate. Take care. Cheers, bye-bye. Duncan. All the best. Bye-bye, bye-bye, bye-bye. bye-bye. If you're enjoying the podcast, I'd be really grateful if you can give it a five-star review on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Equally, if you've read my book and enjoyed it, then I'd be really grateful if you'd give it a five-star review on Amazon, as that's probably the only platform you can use to review books, apart from Goodreads, I think. 
And if you want to contact me to tell me anything or ask me anything, you can do that uh, by sending an email to ian, I-A-I-N, at ik-insights.com, which is my work email address. And finally, if you'd like to be part of the Tango Juliet Foxtrot Facebook site, you can find it, funnily enough, on Facebook. Thanks a lot. Once we had a policeman, he was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his feet. But now we never see him, it really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town. Oh. <laughs> Thank you.